Hello and welcome to Note Up number 121. I am your host, Bradley Farias. I'm kind of that ES modules guy. With me today, we have two guests, uh, Paul Frezzi and Matthias Boos, and we will be talking about peer-to-peer. So with that in mind, Paul, can you introduce yourself? Sure, yeah, how's it going? Uh, I work on an experimental web browser that integrates peer-to-peer technology, and that's called the Beaker Browser. Previously, I worked on the Secure Scuttlebutt project, which was a totally peer-to-peer social network. Cool. And Matthias, can you introduce yourself as well? Yeah, sure. I'm Matthias. I am a Node.js hacker. and do a lot of modules, especially peer-to-peer stuff. I mainly work on the DAT project, which is the peer-to-peer data protocol for transferring data on Usenet. I've done a lot of different stuff in the past, including a lot of peer-to-peer stuff like BitTorrent modules and other cool things. Nice. So as as I said earlier, we're going to be doing a peer-to-peer show today. Where to start with peer-to-peer? This is a problem that I have, and so I'm, I'm wondering if you two can help me figure out what to talk about, what problems there are that peer-to-peer might be relevant to today. It looks like it can do almost anything from my perspective. Uh, <laughs> so do you have any particular application in mind? I know at least back in the younger days, there were things like Napster, which would let you share things with your friends and do it kind of offline. Can either of you speak to kind of just the sharing aspect to begin with? Because that's what I'm most familiar with. Yeah, for sure. I I would actually say you could split the range of things that peer-to-peer solves into a bunch of technical problems and then uh, a bunch of social problems. And I actually, I'm going to punt it over to Matthias to talk about some of the technical stuff, but I I would frame what we're looking at right now as how can we add more diversity into the networking architectures we have? Because at the moment, we've been doing everything through cloud hosting. We use a server for just about everything. And sort of the interesting question that we can ask now is, what happens if we introduce peer-to-peer tech stuff that works like, for instance, BitTorrent into the protocols that we use in mainstream applications? And what kind of technical benefits can we get? And then what kind of social benefits we can get with how people interact with their software, interact with each other, and interact with their own data. Yeah, there's a lot of technical advantages, and Matthias, I don't know when you want to, what you want to cover there. It's like, it's, 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 a, it's like Bradley said, it's, it's, a, it's a hard question. It's like, you know, where do you stop? Where do you start? Where do you stop? Peer-to-peer is, like, when we say peer-to-peer apps, it's, kinda, it's almost like saying HTTP apps for the web, right? It's like, it, it, it can mean anything. I mean, for me, it's like, you know, you can boil it down to, to a couple of things, I guess, just thinking out loud here. You, it's like, you know, we try to make applications that work better offline. We try to make protocols where you don't have to, to rely on centralized hosts for a variety of things. We try to make things at the same time more secure because once you start thinking, stop thinking about clients and servers and just start thinking about client to client you kind of have to stop trusting central servers and that basically means you have to start thinking about security a lot more. So, uh, I mean, yeah, so for me, it's a, it's a lot of things. Uh, I actually really, I've been working on this on peer-to-peer for, for many years now. And one of the things I actually really like about peer-to-peer is that, you know, it's, it's, it's harder to make stuff up front because we, like I said, we have to think more about these things. We can't get away with just making very basic protocols, but the stuff we end up making tend to be very, very robust. Like if you have a faulty peer that starts writing corrupted data for some reason, you know, your peer-to-peer network will, will discover that because you trust no peers. You always have stuff like content integrity built in and things like that and no single points of, of trust and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's like you said, right, it's really hard. It's hard to contain, right? It's, it's also what makes it really hard to explain to people because it's so many things at once. So... We've mentioned actually several topics, so I'm just going to kind of ask you two about them because you probably know more about them than I do. We just kind of grazed over a topic that caught my eye. You were saying there's content integrity and kind of trust issues with your peers. Uh, 
So right now, when we're doing stuff for the web, it's all about passwords, logins, and like two-factor auth. What does it look like in the peer-to-peer world where you don't trust anything, it sounds like? I mean, you always trust, I mean, in any system, you always have some sort of point of trust, right? It's just a matter of where does that point of trust live? Uh, and when I say we don't, we don't, in peer-to-peer, we tend to not trust remote things, which means that we tend to trust things that we control. So from a practical point of view, that usually means things that are living on your computer, you trust. We don't have things like, we have less things like passwords and logins because we don't log into things. In classic peer-to-peer, classic peer-to-peer systems, like the most classic of all peer-to-peer systems is a, it's a data sharing system like uh, BitTorrent uh, or that or uh, among a lot of other systems out there where you, you simply have, you know, you have some data and you want to you wanna share that data. So what does data mean? Like, how do you identify data? It's, it's, like, it's a hard question. And in classic scenarios, like you would put data on a server and by putting it on a server, you, you would at some point give that, the data a name. The name would just be like a opaque name that, you know, it'd be my data dot something <clears throat> and somebody could download that. Where's the trust in that when somebody downloads the data, well, how do they know that they're actually getting the right data? Well, they don't except if they trust that the server is serving the correct thing and that they trust that there's no, no man in the middle, there's no servers in between that are like switching out the data with something else, right? I mean, if you look at all kinds of attacks on the internet, there's like, you know, people downloading apps of websites and people swapping out these apps with something else. So it's like something that happens quite a lot. So in a, in a peer-to-peer system, you, you, you kind of turn this around and say, we don't trust that's a simple name because it means something. So we want to trust something stronger. We want to tr- trust something that identifies the data better. Uh, and that could be something like a hash, like a checksum of the data. So we run these kind of uh, advanced systems and that, that builds these ha- hashing structures of the data that allows us to verify data if you have a hash of the data and even allows us to verify only parts of the data. Uh, and then instead of naming the data a name, you would just name the data a hash, and then somebody has the hash, they can verify that they get the data correctly. Uh, would you say, Paul, that's like a, long, a good example? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the traditional networking model, it's connection-based. You think right. in terms of endpoints that you're connecting to, and HTTPS is the uh, really great example of that. So when you're naming something in a connection-based networking protocol, you think about it in terms of the server that you're talking to. Uh, an asset is named by you know google.com slash whatever is underneath, or twitter.com slash pphrase is me, but that's me because Twitter says so. And with a peer-to-peer network, you're moving away from a connection-focused networking model and into, I guess what I would call a content-based model. Right. And so you end up, instead of trusting endpoints, you actually kind of, you don't want to trust your network peers at all because you want to be able to treat all of your network peers anonymously because you want any computer to be able to host any piece of content. That's one of the core ideas of BitTorrent, for example, that you can have a bunch of different computers hosting the same information and they're all acting interchangeably with each other. And the way that you accomplish that is by using cryptography you use the content hash, which is recomputable, and so you can verify it and authenticate a piece of information because your your identifier for the information can be computed from the information. Right. And so those hashes are your new identifiers. And then you, if you have data that changes over time, you do exactly what you've done in the DAT protocol, which is you use public keys, and then you sign every piece of information that is authored by the holder of that uh, of the key pair. And so this, this is mechanically important for making a peer-to-peer system work. If you want a bunch of computers to be able to work together to share data without having to trust the endpoints, that's how you construct it using the cryptographic identifiers. But those advantages, or the, that design rather, conveys a bunch of advantages on top of it because suddenly we have every piece of data in our network has strict cryptographic authorship. Everything is being signed. We know where it comes from. And that has interesting value, for instance, when you're building an application, if you're only using these content-addressed networks, you don't need to authenticate with an endpoint, so you don't have to have a password. And so it's interesting to think maybe one of the big advantages we can get out of peer-to-peer architectures is, well, no more having to maintain a bunch of passwords. 
And that kind of that kind of punts the problem to making sure that you have good key management in terms of your cryptographic key pairs. So you might have to synchronize some private keys between your computers. You know, otherwise it's pretty. I mean, you might have a password even on your on your private keys. I mean, that might be a password you still have. Right, right, right. right. But that's one only one. Like maybe we can cut down. Yeah, sure. yeah on how many you have to have. Yeah, sure. So you both were talking about how there's a different sense of ownership. You mentioned like your Twitter username is owned by Twitter and cloud-based computing and and peer-to-peer it's more everybody shares this content by address. So if everybody can share the files and everybody is intended to share the files like BitTorrent, does that mean that there's no need for like centralized databases or like some big specific data center where all the data lives because that's what I spend most of my time dealing with at work. So <laughs> I mean, so there's, there's like multiple answers to your question, right? It depends a lot on what you're trying to accomplish. I think, I think something that's really interesting in peer-to-peer is that sure you can have I mean, there's nothing stopping Paul from making a, a, a peer-to-peer service that he controls called Paul's Twitter, where he gives out usernames to people that Paul control, right? Would, do you, do you call, would you call that centralized? I mean, you could, but it's also just, it's still just a, a computer running in Paul's basement. Maybe he has a couple. So it, like, it, it allows for peer-to-peer protocols, kind of allows for this democratization of, uh, of these services where you don't have to run them all in a big data center. You don't have to be a big Fortune 500 to, to do any of this. You can do it at home on your laptop. And make these services. There's nothing stopping you from this. Peer-to-peer is just protocols, right? But it, it doesn't force you into that model, which I think is super interesting. Yeah, you know, at its at its core, it's a lot of it is about flexibility. I, I suspect that the end result architectures are going to be hybrids of services and peer-to-peer. But you know, to the point about ownership, if you um, if anybody could spin up a service, a web service, with no trouble at all, if you know, and, and as many as you wanted then we wouldn't care quite as much about the ownership question in the central service model because anybody could set up a service and tap into the network just fine. But that's, as it turns out, kind of hard to do. And so when we move to the peer-to-peer model, we get that freedom to spin up new collections of data because creating, for instance, a website on a peer-to-peer network, it's totally easy. You can do it as many times as you want, as freely as you want, because you just have to create a key pair and then just write in the files. And so that, that's really the big advantage when it comes to ownership. I mean, I, I also, I mean, I've done multiple, a couple of contracts where we, we actually did use peer-to-peer tech to, to sync things to a centralized place because that, that still has, there's still like plenty of use cases for that. But by using, you know, peer-to-peer tech, you get all the, the niceties of, of the technology. Like, you know, things are offline, it still works. You know, you have devices next to each other, they can sync to each other really easily. So that's like, it's like, you can use it in this way where you, you can actually build traditional systems if you want to, there's sure there's plenty of use cases for that. But you know, with all the niceties of peer-to-peer, the only thing you know a centralized system gives you is just more control, basically, for good and and, and worse. Yeah. So it definitely sounds like things are easier to roll out into a peer-to-peer situation. Well, well, I so, mean, it depends. It also depends on you know, it's easy because you're at the point where you already have the underlying protocols that, you know, makes things easy. But like, you know, writing that underlying layer can be really, really, really hard. That's like, you know, year, years of academia and, and, and development, right? So, sorry, not to interrupt you. Okay. Me not creating the underlying protocols. <laughs> I, I'm wondering if you could just walk me through, say I'm deploying Bradley's comic book store as some sort of website on the peer-to-peer network does that live everywhere automatically or how how do these different systems deal with me deploying my website and then say i'm no longer interested in comic books and i have abandoned that website what what happens here Right. I mean, uh, uh, Paul has done a lot of work on this in his in his in his app bigger or something. He probably has a lot of good thoughts on this. You know, the the question you have to ask is actually kind of on an API by API basis. 
what you want to do is create a stack of APIs that makes it possible to run applications that are purely peer-to-peer as whenever possible. You want to cover as many ranges of use cases as possible because if the more that you can do that way, then as somebody that's creating the application, all you have to do is write the source code and the HTML and the CSS and you put it out into the world and then people will download it on their computer and be able to interact with the application purely on their device and by interacting on the network. So if you can get to a point where you're using nothing but these peer-to-peer techs, then you're solving your DevOps problem. You don't have to set up a server anywhere and maintain it. And that's actually, that's I think developers will be in for that, but also I think it's pretty relevant for enterprises because they're always trying to figure out how to deal with doing in the cloud versus on-premise. And if you can make application bundles which install or just load onto a user's computer through the web browser and just work by talking to the other computers in the network without having to set up a, a physical server somewhere, that's a pretty nice win, especially if the information being worked on is protected intellectual property. You don't have to use the cloud. But at the end of the day, what you have to solve for is how can I cover all of the different APIs that are necessary? And in the case of like a store, a lot of the content of the store is probably pretty easy to do on a peer-to-peer network, but then you have to solve things like payments. And for that, if you want it to work in a nice peer-to-peer fashion, then you're going to bring in probably a crypto coin of some kind. There's also another escape hatch, which is we'll see how well it works, but if you can get in very nice, small, use-case-specific services that maybe they are run by somebody in the cloud somewhere, but an application could ask the platform, maybe the web browser, you know, what services do we have available for handling payments? And then the browser can say, oh, just use this Stripe account that's nicely configured for you. Then we can potentially get to the point where DevOps is not a big thing in application development anymore. And instead, you're just writing these self-contained applications install onto the or, or load into the user's computer and then just um, live independently of uh, of any one host okay that's a that's a bit different than I thought I hadn't really thought about payments so we we also talked previously about there's some offline capabilities of these peer-to-peer systems I'm, I'm now very curious as to how these asynchronous operations work when I do something which in a cloud environment I would expect to be somewhat immediate, like when I edit a Google document or I go and I create a draft in Outlook and it's actually synced to the cloud automatically. When you're offline, that certainly can't happen. And I think it's even more interesting now that we're talking about payments where you can't really pay someone, I don't think, offline, if that makes sense. Do do you have thoughts around the offline problems that people are able to approach now that they can use peer-to-peer? So, I mean, I think offline, I mean, you can have peer-to-peer systems that that actually wouldn't work offline. You, there's like nothing stopping you from making an, an I require online peer-to-peer system. But I, from my point of view, all the interesting ones are offline. So in a in a in a, in a peer-to-peer system, especially the ones I work on, and I also think there's ones that Paul work on, you're mainly just manipulating data structures, and all those data structures live on your computer, right? And the whole offline online thing just means that when are you syncing these data structures to other people, right? So if you're connected to somebody. And that could just even be in your own house. You don't need to be on the internet, but it could be over Bluetooth or like whatever, or radio, any kind of connectivity you have to somebody else. You're usually able to sync those changes to that data structure to somebody else. So now offline basically just boils down to latency. Like being offline just means that your your your, your sync is very very has a very very high latency because you're offline for two days, right? So, and now all of a sudden. It starts turning into like a use case problem. Like, so what are you building? Because many applications wouldn't care about this. So, for example, I've done a lot of stuff with just basic data collection, where you have an app that runs and connects to some sensor and collects some data, and you want this data to sync to other machines so you can do analysis on it. So, in that scenario, the machine is offline for a day. 
doesn't really matter. You just want it to be able to continue to collect the data. And then once it can talk to somebody else, any machine, it can then, you know, do a, a sync of the, the data it has collected since last time it synced efficiently. So then, then you know, then then it, that's like a very basic app where you don't even have to think about the, the UX in this. It's just like, it's a syncing app. Like you said, then there's like a other range of applications where, like if I'm editing a, a document, again, it's the same basic data structure underneath flow level wise, where you're just editing a document somehow boils down to you editing some data structure and being offline, that means that your changes will sync to somebody else way later. So it's very important then that your peer-to-peer system has a, you know, ways of knowing when these changes happen in terms of like logical time compared to other changes and logical time, meaning like if somebody else types something at the same time, you end up in a classic conflict resolution scenario. Like kind of like if you're working on a Git repository and, uh, and you want online. So, I mean, I think my point is just like it depends a lot on your use cases, but uh, you know, the underlying peer-to-peer tick can, can kind of be the same. There's the broad picture of hey, we have these offline first protocols, and as it turns out, you can do a lot of stuff with them. So I wouldn't want to step on that. But then the next step is to say, okay, let's add in some nuance. What are your requirements, and how can you configure the usage of those protocols to handle some of the other requirements? And exactly like you were saying, well, for a lot of applications that are like things like, let's say you're doing something like a Twitter where you're posting status updates, that situation works actually pretty nicely for the offline because it's just, you know, there's not a lot of collaboration around a particular datum. You publish it and then it's out there. And so that works really nicely. But then you have something like a doc and docs always, you know, something like Google Docs has always had exactly like Matthias was saying, have have always had coordination problems where you want to make sure that concurrent edits, you know, when two people type in the same spot at the same time, you got to make sure everybody comes to the exact same end state that ends up requiring the same kind of work that you have for any offline first protocol. So in that scenario, what you just need to do is you can start with an offline first peer-to-peer protocol, and then you put the resolution mechanisms in there like a CRDT or operational transforms. Again, very easy to build on this peer-to-peer tech. And then it just becomes a question. The final question just becomes about latency. Can you explain what a CRDT is for everyone else. (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. In systems that are potentially going to go offline, but still want to accept changes when when they're offline, you need a way for the data to um, kind of mix back together once the computer does come back online. You call that a concurrent change. So your computer and my computer, we're working on a document together. We both delete the whole document and write something new. Well, we've just made this big concurrent changes. So how do we synchronize those changes together? And the really important thing is whatever we do, we got to make sure that both computers come to the exact same output state. Because if they don't, if if our computers think that the document is different, then we're just never going to get back on the same page with each other. So it's important that you have a way to to write your your application so that it can merge together these concurrent changes. And a CRDT is a kind of data structure which is designed to do that. Um, it stands, it's, it's kind of controversial what that stands for, but conflict-free replicated data type is the acronym I prefer. And in fact, the DAT protocol, which Matthias works on, use, is um, integrating a new, a new version. Maybe you want to talk about this, Matthias, that integrates one of these CRDTs at the file system level so that you can have multiple people working on the same set of files in an offline fashion, but then you can pop back on. And I guess it's kind of like Dropbox, right? Like whenever there have been concurrent changes, it'll detect it. Now, if it, if it has a way to automatically resolve those concurrent changes, it will. But if it's one of those things where it's like, nope, there's a merge conflict, it'll basically hold on to both versions and let the application choose how to deal with that. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, it, it also is, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, so you have a system, right? That does something like you know edits files, and if, if 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 two people are not connected to each other and, and does something with the file, from their point of view it's all good. And then you know when they start talking to each other, there's like a conflict. So basically, a conflict just boils down to there's now multiple versions of a file. And if you have a really really good peer-to-peer system, it will be able to help you with saying things like oh actually this one change was actually happening later than this other change in terms of like 
network ordering and stuff like that. So it can give you a lot of context, but at the end of the day, it turns down to a human problem where the only thing the system can tell you is like, there's actually two versions of, of the same thing. So now it like it, it all of a sudden this turns into a just it's basically just a UX problem. I mean, still this tech, but it's, it's basically just a UX problem. How do you present to a user that the system that uh, has like offline capabilities now have two two versions of the same thing? So in something like Git, which is also a peer-to-peer -peer system uh, at its core, you, they just say that can never happen. We force uh, whoever is, is is the last push this change to to resolve it. They call it right to merge a, a conflict and. And, and fix it. So there's always, always only one version. In other systems, like like uh, uh, the thing that Paul's talking about that I'm working on in that, we, we say uh, we add APIs, we solve it by, by at a low level, we're saying, you know, you can add an API, you can kind of pick, pick, pick the one you want. So picking the one could be the, you know, you can do a very simple model that might be very wrong where you say we pick the one with the highest timestamp and just trust that the timestamp is best. But, you know, we have APIs that allow you to, to, to do things like that. Most systems do. In Dropbox, I think they, which is also have this problem, I think they solve it by basically just making two copies of a file on disk. That's how they present it to the user. And then they would call one copy Matthias's copy, and the other one would be Paul's copy. And then it's up to the user to kind of rename it back to the original name, the, the one they prefer, right? It's basically, it's it, for those kind of applications, it's just turned, you, you know, your peer-to-peer -peer system can provide you with a lot of help, and it should. But at the end of the day, for most things, this turns down to a, to a human problem, unless you're using a data structure that always have a way to merge in things, which is how I usually ex explain a CRDT. So it's just like a data structure where you can always go from two conflicting items to one item. That's the correct one. So if you think about this in terms of like some data structures, like a, a set, if you have a set of values, like a set containing like a couple of values, if you have two conflicting sets, you can easily merge them together by just taking the union of the set, for example. Yeah, there are there are multiple kinds of CRDTs. The one that you're implementing into DAT is just one of many different varieties. Yeah, and, yeah. And it really depends on what kind of information you're representing. There there are a lot of different CRDTs that are actually designed for documents like Google Docs. There are sets like you were just talking about. It's actually it's a very kind of interesting study. It's a super interesting thing. Yeah. And there's a lot of active active research going on here also. I think we would be um, sort of remiss not to mention that there is one property that CRDTs and this sort of offline first model can't necessarily provide, which is transaction guarantees. And it, I just want to mention this so that nobody's tweeting at us saying we're ignoring something really important. If you have some kind of constraint that you want to apply to data, then you're either going to need a, a, a highly consistent system, which is what blockchains, which uh, the crypto coins do, or you're going to need a server somewhere. And I don't know if we want to get into that, but I just wanted to make sure that we were being complete in our definitions here. Yeah, so also, I mean, now you mentioned that, I would say also, you know, when you deal with P2P systems, if you're a developer that wants to to, to work on applications on top of P2P systems, you also kind of have to get in this mindset of, of you know, knowing what can happen in a peer to peer system. So like this is one of the classic things that can happen and try to try to design your application in a way where this happens the least, right? So for example, that would mean if you pick an ID, right? If you have a database that requires a user ID, picking, picking user IDs by taking an incrementing number is a bad idea, right? Because, because that's gonna conflict. There's gonna be two peers picking the same ID. If you pick an ID by, by taking a, a 32 byte a highly random buffer. That's probably better, right? It's probably not going to hash uh, clash. Or if you take the hashes on user information, that's even better. It's never going to clash. So you have to get in this mindset, which is like easier said than done, to be honest. This is this is really one of the main challenges we have working on Beaker is how do we build an application stack that takes advantage of the peer-to-peer -peer stuff, but is also really intuitive for developers, because if it ends up being esoteric. If you have to go through conversations as long as we've just had explaining the pieces to, to each developer, then people are just going to be like, whoa, I can't work with this. So, yeah, that's a good it, point. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we're starting to get into actual technologies and things that are solving kind of this problem landscape I was trying to get to. So, I think this is a good time to take a short break before we get into those in depth and have a few words from our sponsor. DigitalOcean has just launched Spaces, a beautifully simple object storage service designed for developers who want a simple way to store and serve a vast amount of data. 
including hosting web assets, storing user-generated content such as images and large media files, archiving backups in the cloud, and storing logs. They've simplified the essentials of object storage to save you time. Name your space and tap Create, and you're ready to go in seconds. Or use your favorite storage management tools and libraries. A large ecosystem of S3-compatible tools and libraries can be used to manage your space. We believe in simplifying our products to enable developers to build great software. To do that, we look at every opportunity to remove friction from the development process, including spending less time estimating costs associated with storage, transfer, pricing tiers, number of requests, and regional pricing. Spaces is available for a simple $5 per month and includes 250 gigabytes of storage and 1 terabyte of outbound bandwidth. There are no costs per requests and additional storage is priced at the lowest rate available. 1 cent per gigabyte transferred and 2 cents per gigabyte stored. Uploads are free. Spaces provides cost savings for up to 10 times along with predictable pricing and no surprises on your monthly bill. To make it easy to try, both new and existing DigitalOcean customers can get started with a free two-month trial of Spaces by going to do.co slash up. Okay, so we're back and we've been discussing kind of the problem landscape of peer-to-peer, what it can be used for in the past segment, and we've started discussing actual use cases that are solvable. Matthias, you were talking about how it can be used as kind of this way to synchronize data. We were talking about the DAP project, which it sounds like both of you are using. And I guess if you could just enlighten me into what you're doing, what use cases you're solving with peer-to-peer or have done so in the past, that would be super helpful for me. Yeah, sure. I can probably talk about all the things I've done with peer-to-peer for many hours, but I'll try to to boil it down to some of the interesting ones. I mean, mainly I've just been trying to... So first of all, I've done a lot of experiments trying to push peer-to-peer to see, like, you know, what's the most crazy ideas we can have. But the thing to remember is also it's really, really good for, for basic stuff, honestly. So what I've been doing recently a lot is, is trying to help people set up, especially in a science environment, set up simple machines that just collect a bunch of bunch of data but are set up in an environment where like internet might not be the, the first thing you have but once in a while you'll get internet and then uh, just basically just have all this data synced together and, and sync to other computers to be able to get analyzed or archived and uh, yeah i've been using the that stack for that because that's what I work on and what I think is the best fit for this so that's um, kind of it's like mesh topologies inside of lands right yeah right yeah exactly and that's in so, a so science it's actually, environment. It's actually, that's it's science-based. Uh, and it's actually really interesting because... By setting this up, I discovered all these other use cases that I hadn't thought about, which, like, of course you do when you actually talk to people using peer-to-peer. So, for example, in science, it's super important to actually have these offline environments once in a while for regulation, right? There's a bunch of science use cases where you're not allowed to have a computer online, but you still want to be able to have systems where once in a while a, a technician can collect data. So having a having a peer-to-peer system where offline by choice uh, is capable super important and like i was surprised at how much that, that meant for 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 actual use cases um, and uh, uh, so that was like just just another way where peer-to-peer really worked so that's 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 synchronizing devices kind of in the field yeah just classic yeah. data syncing yeah and then that gets into publishing the data sets too right yeah, so at some point, this is like raw data, basically, like raw data being collected by a bunch of sensors, and then it gets analyzed. It's actually really interesting because the way it works is that it gets analyzed by a scientist, and then the, the scientists read the data and like reconfigure parameters, and they reconfiguring it by just writing to a peer-to-peer data store that then syncs back to all devices, and then the devices pick up that the, the, it has changed, then it updates the sensors. So it's kind of like a very interesting, very high latency, very high latency feedback loop. So, and then the publishing, there's also like, you're talking about putting together registries, right? Like this, I think this gets packaged together with the DAT project. Yeah. So, so at some point, this is like what I just talked about is basically where people, the scientists use peer-to-peer for initial discovery and research, basically, right? It's kind of like when we're developers, we just hack in a file and like, but at some point 
they're pretty comfortable with the results and they want to either they want to publish it internally or they want to publish it on uh, as open data they can actually choose to do both and uh, using the future peer system they can like publish the data to a registry and a registry in this sense is just like a public peer that other people can access they can then where they can add like a you know a nice readme for the data some sort of like graphical overview uh, that other people can easily comprehend and then they can cl clone the data and get the data out or they can and they, like I said, they can, depending on the use case of the science, they can choose to just do this internally, but still using just peer-to-peer -peer tech, or they can do it on the, on, on the web using one of some of the public registries that are out there already for, for that. I know you're running one also, Paul, the hash-based stuff. Super cool. Yeah. I mean, in, in both of these cases, I think the big advantage for scientists is that the configuration is so minimal. You can, yeah. and that required, means there's less forethought required and that is useful for their not only their collection, but also publishing and then archival. They don't have to worry about having one server set up somewhere that is going to make sure the data sets stay online because this peer-to-peer oh, yeah. -peer mesh is going to keep it alive. It's kind of interesting because all the you know all the qualities that the peer-to-peer -peer is basically qualities they want. It's like you know they want to. It has the history. It's really important. Like in case somebody messes up, they can roll back. It has the you know the offline capabilities. Like I said, that's really really important because I mean labs, even though they're in uh, in like highly developed countries usually, but just they can be in a cement building that has like no Wi-Fi. So you need to be able to to run. Uh, and actually, I actually have been in those situations where I set that up. So it has to be able to. Um, to do that and it's super interesting for them that they can just use the same protocol to do all of it right it's like the same it's just the same basic protocol that does all these things for them without like forcing them to do it it's just like it fits into their workflow because it's like very basic stuff high level that does it just syncs data right they just choose where to sync it to or when when to get it so you were saying that you're backing up scientific data i know mm -hmm. In the previous segment, I was talking about basically sharing websites, and I think, mm -hmm. has there been work on basically archiving internet sites automatically with peer-to-peer, -peer? or is that... There definitely has. Matthias, do you know what's going on with that? There's been a lot of, like let's say focused efforts on archiving certain sites. I mean, if you're talking about archiving like the entire web, kind of like what the Internet Archive does. There are various projects running, but I don't know anybody that's been super successful in like, getting that done yet. It requires a lot of like operational effort to, to have that running. I think um, they might use BitTorrent every once in a while. There's, yeah, it's definitely some that uses BitTorrent, but there's nothing stopping somebody from doing it today, but it does require like resources to do it, to be honest. Yeah. Because you're basically mirroring the, the web, right? It's like, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's a non-free thing to do. <laughs> It'll certainly be a little bit easier if we have these technologies built into the web platform because then it's going to be self-archiving. Yeah, it's pretty a first-class feature, basically. Right? You can just say, hey, I want to clone this. Boom, done. Right. It's kind of like what you can do in Beaker, honestly. Right, right. So we've talked a bit about Beaker. Paul, you work on Beaker. So what are you using Beaker for? Like, What, what use cases is the web platform lacking that you're looking to solve the use cases everything we've talked about so far so offline operation getting uh, rid of devops when possible better content integrity and archival these are all you know advantages but the really high level objective we have is to try to make a more open web experience the sort of interesting thing that happens if you can make peer-to-peer -peer a really core part of the web platform is that you can put more business logic and, and more customizability into the browser itself. Because traditionally, when we make web applications, we use what you call a thick server architecture. You put all the business logic, you put the database, you put just about everything up into the server. And then the applications you your browser is basically showing a thin sort of just interface that calls out to this remote server and with a peer-to-peer -peer architecture you can actually start to build applications which are inverting that relationship where rather than a thick server you have a thick client 
and then the server is either non-existent because you're using peer-to-peer networking or you might use a few thin services. And what's really cool about this is that it means that ownership of the software, including the source code itself, ownership of the data, ownership of the business logic and the network, that's all being put into the user's device. And so you have an application or a website, which is sort of a static bundle of JavaScript and HTML and CSS. You're downloading it all into your computer. And whenever you create any content or data, it's creating other DAT folders onto your computer where you have control over them. And you can actually go to a website within Beaker and you can fork an application or a website because all you're doing really is taking all the files inside of this website that's in this case served over DAT and you're creating a new DAT and you're copying the files over. And just like that, you have a version of the, of the website or the app with all of the source code under your control. So you have a lot of personal customization that's possible because you have the source code on your computer and, and pretty much under your control. From there, what, again, this is about, we're, we're seeing if we can make a really open web platform. And so if the software is un, under the user's control, personally customizable, then they can actually, the next step is to make it a, somewhat of a socially customizable experience where you're talking to other people and saying, you know, okay, we all have our own applications, but we want them to interact effectively. So here are the data formats we're going to use, and here are the rules and the shared business logic we're going to use. And so people personally customizing then kind of grows out to communities and social groups customizing together. And what we would really like to see is is the ability for groups to have a process where they come to decision-making, have a process where they come to decisions about what they want their online communities to be which seems to be really important right now when we're dealing with questions about moderation and quality of information and harassment. And, you know, Twitter and and Facebook and Google are all trying to battle with this idea that they're going to be able to control uh, quality from the top down. And I think instead, if we can make a more open web design, we can have communities from the bottom up choose the rules for themselves and decide what kind of standards that they want to enforce. So Beaker is using this DAT, I guess you'd call it, database for these communications peer-to-peer. I think WebRTC also can let browsers talk to each other, but um, is that is that in the same category of what you're trying to do, or how is that different from your use of uh browsers talking to each other because it sounds like yours is much more permanent storage where my knowledge of WebRTC is things like video conferencing and things like that. Yeah, it's kind of similar to the difference between WebSockets and Ajax. They're different networking tools. WebRTC is mainly designed for synchronous communication, you know, real-time communication. So sending pieces of information directly in a a channel-based fashion is what WebRTC is for. So WebRTC lets you set up channels from one computer to another. The DAP protocol, it's much more like BitTorrent. And the way that you'll interact with it is you you browse sites on the DAP protocol. So it actually acts like a drop-in replacement to HTTP. And so you can browse around on the files that are inside of a DAP archive. And then at the API level, you interact with it through a file system API, which is not too different from the Node file system API, though we did make a few changes. And so from there, you're, the, the actual experience you have as a developer is reading and writing files and also things like watching for changes to files. And, and what, you, there's an API for seeing the history and things like that. Okay, so we're in our final segment. We've discussed what problems peer-to-peer addresses, kind of how peer-to-peer has been used to fix these problems. And we've hinted a little bit that it can be used for not just technology that exists today, but may actually lead to new patterns in technology in the future, new ways to organize not just data, but even communities, since we're talking about these networks of computers. So for you two, what do you think the near to long-term future for 
these projects that you work on will be, or just what you think the technology of peer-to-peer -peer will enable in the far future. When you talk about the future, especially about peer-to-peer, -peer, it's like there's like a technical future and there's a, a more non-technical social future because like it kind of peer-to-peer kind of intersects those two areas. I work a lot on the technical side, so I'll talk a little bit about that. I mean, peer-to-peer -peer has moved a lot from it's kind of actually kind of a new field in computing. Also, it's like PipTorn is not that old. It's from the early 2000s, I think. But we basically moved from, you know, building tools to just share files to trying to think of more of, of, of you know, uh, and sharing files, meaning just sharing static files, like here's a bunch of files, I want to share them, into thinking about more peer-to-peer -peer systems like databases. There was a bunch of interesting databases that came out that was peer-to-peer -peer in the sense that they could run on more than one computer, but still only a couple of computers, like not on the internet, basically. So that would like databases like MongoDB and stuff like that that could run in a data center and be, be spread out. That's, that was super interesting. We're moving more in that towards more in that direction now, where we're starting to see all these very very interesting projects where it's gonna, there's a bunch of interesting, highly scalable peer-to-peer -peer databases coming out. Uh, I'm working on one. Paul, I think, is also working on a couple. Basically, the databases where you can you can take your data and share it with the world and like. Millions of peers can help each other sync this data, but still have an have an API on it that is technically familiar with people that have used databases before. So, if it's a key value store, you could do things like you know retrieve a value and put in a value, and but still have it be a, a peer to peer system where only certain people are allowed to write, and uh, the data you sync that you can trust, even though it goes through an untrusted third party stuff like that. I think that's super interesting. I'm especially interested in in and P2P systems in the future where we focus more on latency and, and, and performance in that in the sense that if you have a data set that has you know terabytes of data or database that when you access some you can access it instantly meaning that we'd think about P2P systems where we efficiently can query millions of records uh, without having to sync all those records to our computers so basically like in uh, distributed indexes and stuff like that I'm really really excited about that and that's that is happening now and all the possibilities that bring is that a part of hyperdb yeah so 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 my uh, the project i'm working on that tries to achieve this is called hyperdb that it actually uses the the debt protocol underneath to kind of like do all the heavy peer-to-peer -peer lifting because the debt project does that in a way that's very modular so the debt project itself is a file system, but it can easily you can easily take the components and like refactor them into any kind of peer-to-peer uh, -peer system you would like. So, so I call mine uh, HyperDB. It's just a key value store built on the same primitives, but that gives you this like very selective sync, but still being a peer-to-peer -peer database in the sense that it's built to like run on on hopefully millions of computers at the same time, uh, syncing the same data set in a gossip network. So. Yeah, I'm just really excited about that because the applications you can build in when you have a query interface on top is just, it turns peer-to-peer -peer into a much more like non-static thing where we can start to actually build peer-to-peer -peer applications, which is super interesting. Yeah, big, big communal databases. And are you working on one as well, Paul? I, I am. It's at a different level of the stack and I'll be interested to see how our two approaches end up commingling in the future. So Mafintosh is working on HyperDB. I'm working on something called ingest. The approach we're taking is the DAT protocol exposes a files interface and we that's the main interface that we use for just about everything inside of Beaker. But as great as files are they're not very good for database-like operations. For instance, if you want to query a bunch of files all at once for the contents of them, you need some kind of mechanism for, for running those queries. So we put together an indexer. It's kind of a crawling indexer, which is called ingestDB. Ingest, like it's eating these records and putting together these indexes. And it is basically designed to make the file system look like a database for application developers. And so you have 
tables that you create by defining where ingest is going to crawl and then saying, okay, if it contains the following JSON files with a name record, you know, a name attribute inside of it and a good description attribute and things like that, then add it to the index and then create fast indexes on the following attributes so that I can good, do good queries and things like that. And so it's a database built on top of a file system and it, it, we made it so that we can build applications a little bit more easily. So far, it seems to be working pretty well. And so we're toying now with how we could actually integrate it into the core stack of Beaker so that application development is really, really simple for, for somebody just sitting down. They can sit down and have a, a set of database ideas that are just, oh, hey, I can write to a timeline because there's a timeline concept. I want to create an event. And so we have like this kind of collection of semantic objects or semantic record types that are just built straight into the browser. They operate at different points in the stack, so I'll be interested to see how ingest and HyperDB interact, and it's probably likely that we'd want to have both because the properties will be operating at different levels. But we'll, we'll see. It's kind of an experiment for both of us. I think, you know, since we have these really good P2P algorithms now that are all... I mean, the, one, the stuff we've built so far, uh, the most of it has been very low level and down the stack. The interesting thing is that they all solve like very hard problems like data replication and what we've talked about in, in the podcast so far. And it opens up like, you know, all these really, really cool things you can build on top that are actually not that hard to build once you get into the mindset. Like my database, HyperDB, I think it's like it's probably a couple of files, like, you know, probably like a 500 lines of code, maybe a thousand. It's like, it's not, it's not a lot of code because all the hard replication problems have, are solved in the lower level stack that is super stable. So there's room for hundreds of databases in the space on top that all do very specific things because they're easy to build, right? So we want to get into this pattern of making small modular databases that all can sync together, which I think is really, really cool. That's a mentality that was pretty big in the level DB world, if I remember right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I like to think of this as like, you know, if we had level, because everything and level is still cool and still awesome, but what level always lacked in thinking back, uh, looking back, in my opinion, was that basic replication mechanism where we didn't have to re-implement it all the time because it is really, really hard. It's hard to get right. So now we are at that level where we like, you know, we basically have the replication mechanism. Now we just need level on top, <laughs> and then we can get back into the modular way of of looking at databases, which is really cool. So in this case, you thought about the network first. And you built the tools there, and then on top of that, you're building yeah. the database modules. Yeah, exactly. I wouldn't say that I, I thought about it, but, but it's, a, it's a natural consequence that turned out to be really, really good, which is even better, I think. It's an emergent design. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, database is just one, one example of a pattern that, that you know, fits the, I'm sure you can come up with many, many other applications where if you think about, oh, replication is solved, I can actually sync this. Right. Uh, the possibilities just start to be really, really interesting and, and fun right away. If for anybody that's wanted to build on top of it, the core piece is actually just an append-only log, and you can build just about anything on top of an append-only log. So take an append-only log, you solve replication for that log, and you get a lot of possibilities. Yeah, and you know, and, and also the thing, the, the thing we started to think about a lot, uh, we talked about it a little bit, I'll just reiterate it, is that you know, we want to make peer-to-peer systems that, that are instant and that can, that can sync right away. We want to get out of this pattern of when you start an application, it has to go through five minutes of syncing, spinning beach ball. We want to just have something that boots up and shows you the latest news, even though it's peer-to-peer. And then you can, but you still have the, the, you know, the peer-to-peer niceties of you can go infinitely back in time. If you want to, yeah, uh, that's. I mean, that's spot on. the The long sync times. There's really no reason for it. You don't have long sync times with HTTP, and right. all it comes down to is being intelligent about what you ask the network for. You don't have to get the whole history if you can be a little bit smarter about it. Right. Usability is a big part of all of this. Yeah, this is basically UX, right? It's like you know, it's super important UX. So it sounds like a lot of the underlying technology has evolved very much and you're seeing the end goals being more user-friendly peer-to-peer. We've talked about this a couple times in the other segments as well. Paul, I know you're working essentially on a peer-to-peer based, I don't want to call it a browser because it is also a hosting mechanism, 
but that is that is certainly the best word I have for it. So, do you envision uh, kind of this user experience becoming more like you're a file editor, which is what it sounds like DAT provides, and combining this new user experience that's been tailored onto the constraints of peer-to-peer. I know you've spoken in the past at, about how this is the original design of the web. So do you think that's where we're going to end up? Yeah. You know, is it a browser or is it a server? It really gets to the core point. You know, the original web was supposed to be sort of a permissionless place for anybody to publish the commons. And I think what peer-to-peer tech does is it brings back that both readable and writable concept of the web, where, again, you don't need to ask permission. You can just start publishing right away. There's a little history of the web. It's my highly biased history of the web that I like to tell people, which is in the 90s, it was kind of academic and kind of hobbyist, but it was still kind of cool and there was all this potential And then from like 2000 to 2008, it was when all the startups were happening and you got things like Facebook and Twitter. And it was really exciting then because we were getting new things like MapQuest, if you can remember what MapQuest was. Not even Google Maps, but the ability to print out directions. And that was a pretty exciting time, Web 2.0 and Ajax and all that. By 2008, we pretty much started to get to the time we're in now, which is where there's a couple of big businesses that really won on the web and run the show. So I would say right now we're kind of in this corporation-driven web where it's Google setting a lot of the standards for the web platform. It's Facebook being basically the web for a lot of people and then Amazon ruling e-commerce. And what I hope can happen is that when we get to roughly 2020 or hopefully even sooner, we can kind of get away from corporate-driven web and into a user-driven web where because this is such an open and permissionless system and because the business rules are being vested in users' devices, the decision-making about how all these web networks are supposed to operate can actually be invested into the communities themselves. And we can have a much more bottom-up creation of the web as opposed to the top-down sort of one-size-fits-all mentality that we've seen in the web for the past 10 to 20 years. I'm definitely going to quote you that we have three years until the peer-to-peer web. You're going to start your clocks. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you said you hope it's even shorter than that, so that's really exciting. We've, we've got so much to learn. I have so much to learn about what I can use peer-to-peer for. It sounds like we're ready... Technically, on the back-end side, we're just trying to figure out socially user-driven experiences and everything. So I'm looking forward to all this. So thank you so much for talking about this. It is our custom to try to plug things at the end of this show. I personally have been playing a video game recently called A Hat in Time, which is kind of this old-style Super Mario 64 Banjo-Kazooie platformer, which I totally love and encourage everybody uh, to at least take a look at. But for the two of you, do you have anything you want to plug? Yeah, I've got one. I really, really, really love history. Big fan. And there's a great podcast right now called The Revolutions Podcast by Mike Duncan, where he starts, I want to say, in the English Revolution that occurred in the 1600s or so, somewhere around there, and jumps from revolution to revolution, mainly in Europe. So the French Revolution, the American Revolution, the subsequent French revolutions. And it's a really, really cool way to get your history about how politics has evolved especially in the West for the past 500 years. So it's it's a really gripping listen. I highly recommend it. I actually listened to that podcast recently. It's really, really good. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to re-plug it just quickly. I also I want to plug this book called I Heart Locks. It's a, it's a, it's a book about Hanoi Locks that I, that was the book that inspired me to 
to actually start working in this space. And the really, really cool thing about this book and the reason why I like it is that it's really, really short and uh, gets to the point. And that's also what I like about uh, Pannonia Logs in general. It's 60 pages, so it's basically a pamphlet. So go read it, it's awesome. Cool, I can definitely do that at 60 pages. I'm not prepared for very large books. So with that, if you enjoyed the show, follow us at NoteUp on Twitter. If you want to sponsor the show or just support us, please email noteup at gmail.com for more information. And with that, goodbye. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you.